You can go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue our study and are in uh, chapter 21. As you're turning there, I was reminded as I was studying uh, this, this week and of the ancient Greek world, there, you know, when they would put on plays, they didn't have movie screens and projectors, but when they put on their plays, the actor would often wear a mask that covered the entirety of their face to portray various characters. And these large masks had exaggerated expressions. It might be huge smiles, frowns, or funny looks on their face. It was to help convey who the character was that they were playing and what they were doing. Uh, Interestingly, these masks also worked a little bit like a megaphone. They helped to further project the voices in the amphitheater. The amphitheaters themselves were designed carefully for acoustics and to project voices, but this further enhanced the voice of the actors. These actors were called pretenders, or hypocrites, from which we get the English word hypocrite. Over time, that term hypocrite developed into a derogatory term for someone who deceives. Specifically, one who acted or spoke in a way that created a public persona, a public perception or impression that was at odds with their real purpose and motivation, with who they really were. In other words, you act and speak one way in front of one group of people and a totally different way around others. In Matthew, you may have already recognized this, this is one of Jesus' preferred terms for the religious leaders of Israel. These pretenders who pretend to love God when all they really loved was self, who told the people they cared about them when really all they cared about was power, wealth, and riches. These religious leaders claimed to believe. They claimed to have faith in God. In fact, they said, and they would claim, and they would put on a show as if they had greater faith than anyone else. But Jesus, throughout his ministry, exposed their hypocrisy and false belief over and over again, time and time again. Well, this next section of Matthew develops the importance of genuine belief. And he does it in a surprising way. And so look with me, if you will, this morning as Matthew relates to us the character of genuine faith. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 21, we read, Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it, and he found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Well, with that, let's pray. Father, 
we come to a passage that in some ways is almost humorous if it wasn't so serious. Father, we want to think carefully and cautiously about what we encounter this morning, especially in the context in which we find it. As you enter this Passion Week, as it's so often called, this Passover week that will culminate with the one true and final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Father, help us this morning to ask the hard questions of ourselves, to lay bare our hearts and our minds. Help us to seek to be conformed to your image and to take on the mind of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, last week we finished in verse 17 with the ominous word of judgment against the Jewish religious leaders. It's those words, he left them. Matthew writes that there at the end of verse 17, and it signaled Jesus' final rejection of the Jewish leaders. From here on out, when it comes to the Jewish leaders, it is judgment. And Matthew doesn't break the narrative. There's a break in days, but there's not a break in the narrative between verses 17 and 18. He rolls right into it, and that's important because it means we're looking at the same context. And Matthew records that they returned to Bethany. You remember they had started there. They returned to Bethany that night before coming again to Jerusalem the next morning. And it's on that road to Jerusalem the day after overturning tables and rebuking the religious leaders that Jesus provides an object lesson that, again, if not so serious, would be pretty funny. The events Matthew relates are instructive for us. They help us to not only identify what genuine belief looks like, but to better understand its power and its importance in our life. And let's see how he does this. As he begins to teach us about genuine belief, the very first thing we see is that genuine belief hates hypocrisy. Well, where do I get that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verses 18 and 19. Jesus and the disciples had spent that night in Bethany. They got up early in the morning, probably just before daybreak, to set out for Jerusalem. Apparently, Jesus didn't get much of a breakfast because he became hungry shortly after setting out. Probably somewhere around Bethpage. Uh, you saw Bethpage referenced in verse 1 of this chapter, Bethany and Bethpage. They didn't yet have Waffle House or all-night diners, so options were pretty limited. But Jesus spots a fig tree on the road. And since it's along the road, it's fair game to any passerby, just like the paths that are cut in fields during the time of harvest that allowed persons to pick the heads off of grain to satisfy hunger as they pass through them. Now, Passover is a bit early for figs. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, he notes that. It's a little early for that, the figs. Certainly before the harvest of figs that takes place in June. But there's some good news for a hungry stomach. Beth Page's name means house of the early figs, meaning figs came early there. It may have been the geographical terrain there or the weather patterns that just ripened those fig trees a little bit earlier than everywhere else and produce fruit before the rest of the country. And it's the presence of these leaves that gets Jesus' attention because fig leaves appear around the same time as the fruit or even a little after it is finished maturing and ripening. 
And again, even if not fully ripe, an unripened fig can be eaten. They aren't as enjoyable and sweet, but they will satisfy hunger. So Jesus goes over to the tree to satisfy his hunger. And what does he discover? Or more accurately, what does he not find? Figs. There's no figs on the tree. The tree has deceived him. So what does he do? He curses the tree. He immediately pronounces judgment upon it, and immediately it withers. Now, I remember the first time I read this, not just this week, but read this, and I wonder what happened. Why is Jesus so angry at this tree? I mean, is this the ultimate example of being hangry? You know, that combination of hunger and angry where some of you get a bit irritable and short-tempered when you're hungry? Why did Jesus lose it over this tree? Mark even says it, it wasn't really the time for figs. Poor little tree. That's not exactly what took place. As D.A. Carson notes, Jesus, unable to satisfy his hunger, saw the opportunity of teaching a memorable object lesson and cursed the tree, not because it wasn't bearing fruit. That's not the issue. It wasn't a matter of whether it was in season or not. It was because this tree made every show of life and promised fruit, yet bore none. So the tree is deceptive, and Jesus wants to make an object lesson out of it. But how does it fit into the context here? Let me ask you this. In your reading of Matthew, perhaps you've been with us through most of the study of Matthew, have we seen Matthew describe or use the metaphor of fruit and a tree or a vine anywhere else? As a matter of fact, yes. Not just once, not just twice, but many, many times. There are many examples, not only in Matthew, but even in the other gospel, gospels not recorded in Matthew where Jesus uses the metaphor of fruit. Here are two examples of what we find, and they're, very, they're illustrative. They are good examples of what you find in almost every passage. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, we find not Jesus, but John the Baptist using this metaphor. And he's rebuking the religious leaders, and he tells them to keep bearing fruit, or they need to bear fruit, in keeping with repentance. The fruit you have is bad, bare fruit that is keeping with repentance. And he warns them that because of their lack of fruit or bad fruit, that the ax is already laid against the root of the tree, judgment is coming, they're about to be turned into firewood. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, Jesus warns the wicked religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, First, calling them false prophets and ravenous wolves. But he goes on to say that you will know these false teachers, you will know these false religious leaders by their fruits. And then he warns of the judgment that comes to all who do not bear fruit or do not bear good fruit, who do not bear the fruit that is in keeping with repentance or righteousness. And we find that in every reference to fruit. Nearly every time it's found in context of wicked religious leaders. And in contrast, the disciples are time and again warned to produce good fruit. In contrast to that bad fruit 
or no fruit of the hypocritical religious leaders. They're to produce behavior and speech that is wholesome, that is godly, that truly pleases the Lord. And so as we return to Matthew 21, we realize there's a similar context here. Who had Jesus just confronted the day before? Remember, Matthew doesn't break the narrative. All that happened was they went to sleep and woke up. He had just confronted the religious leaders. That was a significant aspect of Jesus overturning the tables in verses 12 through 17. It was to highlight the hypocrisy of these purveyors of spiritual abuse. And so now Jesus sees an opportunity to provide a sign or an enacted parable, as one commentator called it, a real-life parable, an illustration. There was this tree standing apart from the others, leaves that are promising fruit, promising refreshment, promising to satiate, but upon closer inspection, there was nothing there just like the false teachers of Israel who put on a display of worship, a display of religiosity, but in truth were whitewashed tombs. Pretty on the outside. Death and decay on the inside. Peter describes the hypocrisy of false teachers saying they are wells without water or springs without water. Can you imagine being thirsty? There's no tap to turn on. There's no hose or spigot to grab. you got to pull it by a well. It's been all day. You're tired. You're thirsty. Your throat has gone from just thirsting to scratchy. It feels sore. And you see a well. It's got a bucket. It's got a rope. You walk over to it. You begin lowering it down. And as you lower it, you're waiting for that sound of that splash. Instead, you hear clunk. There's nothing there. Nothing to satisfy. Nothing to provide relief. Jude uses a similar analogy and calls them clouds without water, which if you're a farmer, that's a cruel deception. If you've been waiting for the rain, that is a cruel deception. And then he goes on and uses an analogy very similar in Jude 1.12 to our text here where he says they are autumn trees without fruit. The point is they're hypocrites. They promise hope, they promise peace with God, but they bring no comfort, no rest, no salvation. All they do is blind persons or anesthetize them, that is, numb them to their true condition. Their whole facade is to make people, one, think that they're very religious, and two, provide a false religion that numbs people to recognizing that they are sinners under the judgment of God in need of his forgiveness. And God hates hypocrisy. That is the story of the Old Testament. Time and again, he hates hypocrisy. Beginning of Isaiah opens, put your false worship far from me. And Samuel God reminds through the prophet Samuel, he reminds Saul, I want your heart to be near to me. I don't care about the smell of the burning sacrifices. It's just, it's offensive to me when your heart is not near to me. Hosea 6.6, I delight in loyalty, not sacrifices, the knowledge of God. 
not your burnt offerings. It's what he's always desired. And here that hatred for hypocrisy is pictured in the judgment of the fig tree. The tree that promised fruit, but upon closer inspection offered none, so it's now condemned. And its condemnation comes immediately. The tree is good for nothing else but firewood now. And we're reminded through this vivid illustration that genuine belief imitates the Father and the Son. It hates hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in others, but most importantly, hypocrisy in ourselves. How many times have you started to pray, begun to sing a song, opened your Bible, attended a Bible study, gone to church, all while choosing to live sinfully, refusing to repent where you know you are sinning, choosing your selfish desires instead of what God desires. Stop it. Repent. Bear the fruit of righteousness before it's too late. This is a warning. It's that big red stop sign. Stop. Don't let it become too late. Ask yourself, are you producing the fruit of righteousness? That's a nice church theological expression, isn't it? Bear the fruit of righteousness. If you have never heard a church saying before and you heard that, you'd be wondering, what in the world is he talking about? So what does it look like? Well, first, this fruit is love for Christ. Everything else will follow. That description of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of that will follow when you love Christ. As John says in 1 John, if you love him, you will keep his commandments. What does it mean to love someone? It's to want to please them. It's to want to make them smile. It's to want to make them rejoice. If you love Christ, you will want to do what pleases him, what brings him joy, what brings him delight. If you have children, you know, think on, on their birthday, on Christmas morning, you've gotten them something special. And you bring it to them or you've done something for them. And why do you do it? It's because you want to see the joy and the delight on their faces. Because you love them. Hopefully you still do it now, but think back to when you first started dating your spouse or getting to know her or him. Think about the efforts you went to bring joy to them, to bring a smile to their face, to make them laugh. How do we know what pleases him? How do we know what brings him joy? It's what he's revealed in Scripture, in the Bible, and what you have in front of you. John 15 describes it as abiding in him. That is, it's like living with him, being close to him, being intimate. It's a fancy way of saying, are you regularly praying to him? Are you thanking him? Are you reading his word? Are you regularly praising him and giving thanks? There was a point where it became really popular again to ask, you know, what would Jesus do or wear a WWJD bracelet? I saw one this morning. And it became a little bit of a cliche, but it had the right idea. 
It just needs to be motivated by love for Christ. That's where it ran aground is the reason, the motivation was absent for so many people. But it's the right idea. Without love for Christ, it just becomes legalism. But with love for Christ, it's exactly what it should be. Again, I think I've used this analogy before, but my wife does not want me to give her flowers because I'm supposed to give her flowers. If I give them to her and say, here are the flowers I was supposed to get for you, she's not going to smile. Right? She might find the trash can before she finds a vase. But if I go to her and say, I love you, and this is an expression of my love, it's the same flowers. In fact, maybe they're not even as expensive and as nice, and yet she loves them even more. Why? Because I love her, and she's seen that I love her. It's the motivation. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you've grown up in church. You know all the right things you were supposed to say. You know how you should behave, but like the Greek performers, it's all an act. If that's you this morning, this is the perfect place to stop and recognize that your greatest need is Christ. You need to call to him to confess your spiritual neediness, your inability to love him. Confess your sin. Ask him to save you from the judgment that's to come. And when he does that, your love for him will grow and will increase. But do not wait. Do not be like those in Matthew 7 for whom it was too late. Matthew 7, 21, after talking about fruit, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not enough. It's not enough to come to church. It's not enough to know the answers to the Bible study questions. Jesus goes on to say, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And one of the most ominous, saddest passages of all of Scripture, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, Matthew, he really abbreviated the events that took place in verses 18 and 19. Mark elaborates a little bit further on what took place, because apparently the disciples and the followers were so amazed by the withering of the tree, the instant withering of a tree, that they were left speechless. Because Mark notes that it was the next day when they were again headed to Jerusalem after spending the night in Bethany, and hopefully they got enough to eat that morning, that they once again saw the tree. And it was still withered. And it reminded them again of what had taken place. And they asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus' answer to that question in verses 20 through 21 reveals another characteristic of genuine belief. It overcomes obstacles. Genuine belief, genuine faith, compared to the hypocrisy of false believers, overcomes obstacles. Now remember, context controls and governs all interpretation. So what obstacles are we talking about? We're talking about those that relate to bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in our lives. Verses 20 through 21 as well as verses 22 are subject to a lot of abuse. A lot of misinterpretation and misapplication. They're often quoted without context. They're 
sometimes used to teach a kind of actualized power where you can get anything you want in life if you just have enough faith. And if you don't get what you want, well, it's your problem. Your faith wasn't enough. You've got to try harder, believe harder, think harder. The problem with that is that not only does it abuse the context, but it makes you the source of power, not God. It suggests you have control over God, which makes you God, not Him. So what's going on in these verses? And how does it connect to the cursing of a fig tree? Well, the fig tree illustrated the hypocrisy of false faith that is judged. That false faith is impotent. It's powerless. It's unable to do anything that pleases the Lord. It's unable to claim the promises of the Lord. It's unable to fulfill the will of the Lord, to pray the will of the Lord. You might be asking at this point, so does that mean that being able to move mountains with one word is a promise of God and the will of God for me. Well, before we answer that, it probably helps to be reminded that just like we sometimes will use the metaphor today of a mountain or as an obstacle, it's actually been used like that for thousands of years. Scripture uses a mountain to describe the meta, as a metaphor for the obstacles of life many different places, specifically those that hinder or affect us spiritually. For example, in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, obstacles to building the temple and to walking in obedience are called mountains. In Jeremiah 51, 25, Babylon is a mountain to be destroyed as it opposes God. In Psalm 114, verse 4, verse 6, and verse 8, mountains are a metaphor for the many different obstacles Israel faced when being brought out of Egypt. As one commentator notes, the phrase about removing mountains was a quite common Jewish expression. It was a regular, vivid way of saying, we'll remove the difficulties. And so Jesus is using this figurative language in a parabolic setting, telling a story. He's using an illustration of the tree. And he says that in comparison to the empty faith of the hypocritical religious leaders, genuine faith can overcome all of these obstacles. Those as small as a speed bump and those as, that feel as big as a mountain. Those that feel impossible. Remember, Jesus used the same metaphor after coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. When he got to the base of the mount, a father came up to him saying, I need you. Your disciples can't do it. They can't get this demon out of my son. Jesus learns that they've tried, and they say, we've tried everything. We don't know what to do. Jesus rebuked the disciples for the littleness of their faith. He casts, it out, casts out the demon. And he says, if you will, had but the faith of a mustard seed, you could move this mountain. Now, what mountain was he talking about? I mean, the Mount of Transfiguration, the mountain he had gone up, was standing right behind him. But again, it was an illustration. It was a, it was a word picture that had a quite literal application where you could have moved this demon from there to there. You could have moved it out of him. That what seemed like a mountain, an impossible situation for you, you could have overcome if you had had faith.
Genuine faith overcomes the obstacle of life that are opposed to our obedience and godliness. By the way, the casting out of demons was a specific instruction to those apostles. It was a specific way in which they were to obey. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. And look at how Paul describes the same truth about overcoming these obstacles to our godliness and living in obedience to God. As you're turning there, think about what are some of the things that make obedience to God hard in this life? Different struggles, the difficulties of living in a sin-cursed world. There's a lot of them. Paul's going to name a lot of them. Romans 8, beginning in verse 31, he says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Jump down to verse 35. And he asks this question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But what does he say in verse 37? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Notice it's through him, it's not of our own strength. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think he's covered it. This is the real meaning of Philippians 4.13, that favorite verse of every sports team, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including beat the other team. Works great until they're both claiming the verse. That's not what it means, is it? There's a context. What are the all things? We know there's a context of the all things. We can do all things we have been called to do as believers. Everything associated with denying ungodliness, worldly desires, and living sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, in this life. And that's the character of genuine faith. It overcomes the obstacles to living godly in this life. It doesn't give up. It doesn't surrender. It overcomes them. It does the hard things. It does the difficult things. But here's the catch. It doesn't try to do them in its own power. So, closely connected to overcoming obstacles is a third characteristic of genuine faith. It prays expectantly and earnestly. Prayer is often the catalyst or the means by which we overcome these obstacles. Or at least are motivated to overcoming these obstacles. And like verses 20 and 21, this verse is also abused. Some teach that this verse is the key to unlimited answers from God for anything we want. You think it, you can have it. That if we just have enough faith, we can bind God. He's obligated to give us the answer we want if we can manufacture enough faith, enough belief, enough conviction. But if that's the meaning, I've got a problem. Not only have I made myself bigger than God, which is enough of a problem in itself, I've got another problem, which is what do I do with unanswered prayer? 
Why does he not do what I ask when I ask it? Why can't I pray a new car into existence to replace my clunker with enough expectation and confidence that God will do it? Why didn't God give me the new job when I demonstrated such great faith that I quit my other job before I even applied? Why didn't God heal my parent, my friend, my child? Is it my fault? Am I to carry the guilt of their sickness or their death to the grave? Did they die? Are they sick? Are they hurting because of my lack of faith? You see, we quickly realize that what we believe about this passage has a very practical implication on our lives and how we think. Why aren't my prayers answered then? Well, James begins to answer that question for us. teaches us that we really pray for a lot of things we don't need to be praying for. James chapter 4, verse 3 says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That begins to answer the question. Why don't I get what I want? Well, to start with, many of my requests have wrong motives. So Jesus' instruction here in Matthew 21 is assuming that we're asking with right motives. But what are those? How do I know what those motives should be? Well, John comes to our aid in 1 John chapter 5 when he writes in verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. See, John reiterates Jesus' words to a T, with the one exception that he notes according to his will. And he says we should and can pray expectantly, confidently, looking for Jesus to answer prayer, looking for God to answer our prayers. We should expect it. Now, we rest in his timing, but we should expect it if we are praying according to his will. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't just mean tacking on if it be your will at the end of every prayer. It's much more than that. To pray according to his will means to pray for the things God and Jesus have told us they want and they desire. That's why the disciples, the apostles, should have been able to cast out the demon. Jesus had given them the authority over them and told them, go and do it. See, we've been given a lot of things we are to be doing. A lot of things we've been empowered to do. But how do you know what those are? What does Christ want? You read your Bible. You study Scripture. You develop what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 2.16, the mind of Christ where he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In other words, we don't impart our will on him. He imparts his will on us. We take on his mind. We don't try to change his. We don't try to change God's mind. We want God to change our mind. As one pastor noted, having the mind of Christ means we understand God's plan in the world to bring glory to himself, to restore creation to its original splendor, to provide salvation for sinners. It means we identify with Christ's purpose to seek and to save those who are lost. 
It means we share Jesus' perspective of humility and obedience. It means we share his perspective of compassion. It means we are prayerful and demonstrate dependence on him. Prayer is so much more than casting wishes to heaven. It is rooted in understanding God's promises in his word and praying those promises into action. Now, don't get me wrong. God is all-powerful. He could have chosen another way to accomplish this. He is perfectly capable of accomplishing everything on this earth without us. But he chose not to. He chose in his sovereignty, in his power, in his authority to use weak vessels like me and like you to pray these things into existence. Not anything we want, but what he wants, what he desires, what he wills. The responsibility is on us to make sure we're praying his will. For each prayer we make, we should also ask, what possible reason do I have to expect that God will answer this prayer? If you want a litmus test, ask, what possible reason do I have to expect that God would answer this prayer? And we should be able to answer that question from his word. And the purpose of prayer is not to bring God's will in line with ours, but for us to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and bring our desires in line with his. This is what genuine faith looks like. It prays earnestly and expectantly. There's five descriptions, and I've provided them before when we looked at Matthew 7 where Right before that condemnation, he tells us to ask, to seek, and to knock. These are five descriptions of prayer or of what the prayer of genuine belief looks like, and it's from George Mueller. George Mueller ran an orphan house. He was a, he was a pastor, and he was really a missionary to the orphans in England. And there's some amazing stories of what he, what he prayed into existence and again, it wasn't him, it was the Lord. His reliance, his trust, his full dependence on the Lord. And he, he says that. I could have just read what he wrote at the beginning and said amen and close this. In fact, he says that he learned in his life that anything he thought he was accomplishing or he tried to do, he realized led to utter destruction. The only things that he could point to were those things where he was completely dependent upon the mercy and the will of God but he would pray confidently and earnestly. So many wonderful stories. One of them was he, winter was setting in. The boiler that they used to keep the house warm had worked for the previous years, but it required a great deal of effort. They had to remove all of the brickwork around this boiler in order to inspect it and to repair it. So it's been working, so there was no need to inspect it. Well, it failed right as... Winter set in, the coldest of winter in December, and a north wind began to blow in. They scheduled to have the repairmen come out to take care of it, and as they did, Mueller prayed. And he, he prayed on behalf of these orphans, the needy, which if you study Scripture, you'll see how much God cares for them. He prayed that he would provide relief to them, and that relief would come through workmen who, like those in Nehemiah's day when building the wall, would be excited and urgent about their work, they would accomplish it quickly. And secondly, that he would change the wind from the north, blowing from the north to blow from the south. 
small little request. In the middle of winter, when it's supposed to be freezing. And they came. They began to work. The day they began to work, the wind was blowing in from the north. By the end of the day, it was blowing from the south. The owner of uh, the business, the manager of the business that was taking care of the boiler, showed up to inspect the progress of his men, and Mueller went with him, hoping to encourage and nudge him along. But before he could even utter a word, the manager said, I'm going to have the men work late. They're going to work till midnight, and they're going to return first thing in the morning. And the men said, no, 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 we're working all night. So we've got to take care of these people. There are so many examples of how God answers prayer. And it's encouraging to hear that. That's why it's good to praise the Lord and praise him corporately for answer prayer. But here's five descriptions he gives us of what prayer of genuine belief looks like. First, entire dependence upon the merits and the mediation, that is, the petition of Christ on our behalf as the only ground for any claim of blessing or answer prayer. Second, he says, separation from all known sin. This is that ties in very well with our hypocrisy. Separate from all known sin, pointing to Psalm 66, where if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. For if he were to answer our prayer, Mueller says, he would be sanctioning our sin, and he will not do that. Thirdly, genuine oath. Praise demonstrates faith in God's word of promise as confirmed by his oath. In other words, what God has promised, we expect him to do. In fact, to expect anything less is to make God a liar. To expect anything less than what God has promised he will do is to make him a liar and a perjurer, Mueller says. Fourthly, Asking in accordance with his will. Our motives must be godly. We must not seek any gift of God to consume it upon our lusts. Quoting James 4.3 and 1 John 5.14 that we read. Fifthly, persistence in prayer. I like how he says this. You got to bear with him. He wrote from the 1800s. He hadn't caught up to us yet. There must be waiting on God and waiting for God as the farmer has long patience to wait for the harvest. There must be waiting on God that is going to him in prayer, and there must be waiting for God, as the farmer has long patience to wait for the harvest. Many of you know this experience. God doesn't always answer prayer immediately, and that's where we wait for God. And so... As we look at this text, as we see the figure of the fig tree, we are reminded of our need to lay aside any semblance of hypocrisy and as faithful disciples to prayerfully go to the Lord to overcome every difficulty of this life that hinders godliness and to prayerfully pray, earnestly pray, expecting God to answer. Pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning asking that you would humble us, 
that you would help us to see where we rely on our own strength, that you would show us the hypocrisy in our lives. Father, would we be diligent and obedient to do the hard and necessary work of cutting out our sinful desires, our selfish desires, those lusts of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Father, give us a perspective of this life that does not live for our own gratification, that does not live for our own end, for our own means. And Father, would our prayers align in that way? Would we learn to pray according to your word?